Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Jesus, Dietrich, and Me. This is episode number 80, and we are your hosts, Pastor Tyler Cronkright, Pastor Jim Hill, Vicar Nick. I don't Have we disclosed your last name yet? He said no. <laughs> We're going to keep that a secret. Uh, those of you that listen that know Nick, you know his last name. We don't want him to be held responsible for any of the ludicrous things that come out of our mouths. So he still has one more year of seminary, and we want to make sure that he gets through the seminary processes in order to uh, rejoin us in the ministry in just a few short months, whether that's here in Detroit or elsewhere. But we digress. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed last week's episode. Last week's episode was a little bit uh, different. We did not really talk about Dietrich. We made short mention of Dietrich uh, near the end of the episode, uh, quoting his last line that he said before he was executed, which was, uh, this is the end for me. It is the beginning of life. Pastor Hill, you said uh, that you take that quote and you defy anyone to tell you that Dietrich was not a Christian or a martyr based on that, uh, based on that mm. proclamation of faith. And to hear alternate meanings. Right. right. And last week's episode was a little different. We talked about Easter. We talked about Good Friday. Uh, we talked about uh, a rather controversial saying that without any context uh, might make you clutch your pearls, pick up your stones, and get ready to toss them at us um, rather violently. Uh, when we said that Easter is overrated and simply talking about how uh, Good Friday is where the battle is won. It's where the victory becomes ours. It's what where Christ goes and defeats Satan and thus giving us the forgiveness of sins and how Easter is the exclamation point that is put on that. So we're going to put that behind us because Easter is now officially behind us, the day of Easter anyway. We are still in the season of Easter for, what, the next five weeks? Is that what it is? Yeah, far too long, whatever far. it is. <laughs> Great. <laughs> we, I, I, I think, don't know I think we should lengthen that. Lent and shorten the season <laughs> of Easter, in my opinion. All right, go to ahead. go along with what we talked about this last yes. episode, yes. So this week we are back in Dietrich. We are going to be looking at some of his letters and uh, the letter that we're going to be looking at today, again, I mentioned at the end of the a uh, couple episodes ago when we concluded the initial analysis of Nazi Germany that we were going to begin this series of letters from April to July of 1943. So at this point in time, Dietrich uh, has been arrested. Do we have any information on how he was arrested? Did they, like what happened with all that, Pastor Jim? Oh, I don't remember, but... Uh... I'm sure it was an informant of some kind, uh, and he was part, part part of the Abwehr, which was secret service, and part of his duties were to contact and keep in contact with uh, overseas pastors, mm -hmm. and which he was all for because that allowed him to uh, not only communicate uh, for Germany to them, but also to pass along the state of the church to them, and so I think they just got suspicious. He's in jail, but he's not in jail like American jail, like there was not a, well, I guess it is like American jail, not like when Homeland Security gets you and maybe they charge you in the first hmm. two or three years. Right. Uh, he's not charged yet, is my point. 
Right. They're, so he's he's not serving his sentence no. yet. He's being. They're held. not even ready to go to trial. They're right. building right. a case against him while he's in jail. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to talk about that. So this first letter that we're going to talk about was Wait a actually. Minute. What happened to the folly oh, of the get, week? I knew you were going to get to that. I'm simply setting this. Go up. ahead. So the letter that we're going to begin looking at today is um, from April 25th of 1943, one of his first letters that he writes to his parents. But as Pastor, and it was on Easter Day, but as Pastor Jim just said, it is time. Dun, 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 dun. We need we need clown music. <laughs> circus music. Start with Secure. this week with the folly of the week. Pastor Hill, what is this week's folly? Oh gosh, it's Twitter. And uh, what's his name? Elon Musk? Yes, the Tesla guy. The Tesla guy who is attempting, I tried to, and apparently is still going to buy Twitter. And some I, of the reactions are just typical, Bonhoeffer, don't talk to these fools. Yes. And my statement of the week was, and, and Nick has another one, mine was, well, censorship is free speech. Right. How do as you long, argue with that? As long as you say what we want you to say, you can say whatever you want. Yeah. That's and like, that's what we're and that's what we're trying to protect. That's George Orwell, nineteen eighty four. <laughs> Censorship <laughs> right. is free speech, and they say it with a straight face. Right. Go right. ahead, Nick. Yeah. What was the the quote that you pulled? Because I I think I shared it with you, and I wanted to make sure that you got the right one. It was it had something to do with, well, that's our job to control yeah. free speech. It was MSNBC when they accidentally told the truth on the air. Um, when they said <laughs> Elon is trying to control how people think, that is our job. That is a direct quote from them, so you can probably yeah. find the clip of them yeah. saying Elon, that. <laughs> Elon Musk is trying to control what people say. That's our job. It's our job to control what people think, yes. So openly admitting that by censoring on Twitter and other social media norms that you are attempting to control how people feel, think, and act doesn't get much more stupid than that. No. Right? Not in their world, though. No. In our no, world, no. it is. So. There you go. Follow of the week. Twitter. Twitter people. Are you hoping that Elon Musk buys? The question then becomes, <laughs> if he buys, does he let Donald Trump back on Twitter? I think he has to. I think he has to, too. <laughs> um, back to the letter. All right. Back to the letter. Easter day, 25th of April. All late Easter, right? Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Later, than, later than our Easter yeah. this year. And our Easter was fairly late. She starts with, this is an interesting tidbit. At last, the tenth day has come around, and I'm allowed to write to you again. So, he's only allowed to write every ten days. Mm -hmm. Later, you know, about a year later, months later, they uh, ease up on him, and he can write every four days, but he can only write one letter every ten days. And he writes here, I, I highlighted Good Friday and Easter free us to think about other things far beyond our personal fate, about the ultimate meaning of all life, suffering, and events, and we lay hold of a great hope. That puts a lot of things in perspective for him, because I think at this point he knows he's staring down certain death. And, well, he, he knows that there's a really good chance that he doesn't walk away from this a free man, right? 
Yeah, there's no nobody's going to be standing up trying to get him out of out right. Of this, right? It, it, it reminds me. It reminds me of Luther going to the Diet of Worms when he says essentially, um, "There's a, there's every chance in the world that I don't get out of here." He knew when he went to stand before the Diet that he was would be asked to recant his works and he was going to say no, rightfully so. And that essentially that he was heading towards what he called his crucifixion. It was his Good Friday. And this is, I kind of get that kind of a sense here. Do you? Luther asked for time, remember? They gave him overnight to come back. And I've How read, generous of them. I've read that he went upstairs to his friends and said, paraphrasing, I'm a dead man. Yeah. So <laughs> I guess he had a clear indication that this was how this was going to. He expected to walk away, well, not walk away. He thought he was going to be the next Huss, and if you don't know who Huss is, that's not our place to tell you. But anyway, then he talks, next he talks about, he says people, but from the context, the guards wishing each other Happy Easter, which is, I think, kind of interesting that you think, you know, Nazi guards are saying Christ is risen, he's risen indeed to each other, and I guess he takes some hope from that. Yeah. Um, and then he talks about Maria. Who's Maria? How do you solve a problem like that? No, not that Maria. <laughs> not that one? Okay. No. Uh, this would be his fiance. Right. Maria, oh, what's her last name? Von something. Yeah. <laughs> In the midst of his own suffering, he's talking, her birthday is Good Friday. And then he says, I don't know how bravely she bore the death of her father, her brother, and two cousins of whom she was particularly fond last year. That would be war casualties. Right. Yeah. So that's a lot in one family, right? Mm-hmm. And then he says of his fiancée, her work in the Red Cross will occupy all her time. So he's putting his own suffering in context of his Christ suffering and then in context of his... Uh, fiance suffering mm-hmm. and uh, I guess he's kind of saying I don't have it that bad well, I like what he says too um, right before he says that he says that the comfort of Easter will or Easter will comfort her is what he says and we again we going harping back on what we had said last episode talking about the comfort that Easter brings this is the the proof the evidence the celebration that death has been defeated. And I think he's really leaning into that promise here that even though Maria's family has been slaughtered in a war with war casualties, that he's praying that because she would have been close with him, probably close to his family, and she's leaning in and knows these promises of the resurrection as well. And so there's great comfort in, in that, and I think that he's probably playing off that as well. Would you say that? Yeah. With regard to his suffering? Right. Yeah. Well, his suffering is more physical, I think, than hers oh, yeah. is more emotional. I sure, think. absolutely. Um, next page he says, I read a good deal. Newspapers, novels, and above all, the Bible. Oh. Take that, critics. And then page 27, he says, Before I go to sleep, I repeat to myself the verses that I have learnt during the day, 
and at 6 a.m. I like to read psalms and hymns, and I think of you always. He also elsewhere talks about uh, singing hymns. He's putting Bible memorization as part of his uh, routine while he's in this captivity. Which is probably, I think that's where, that's what a lot of guys do when they're, when they're in prison. I've heard from many of our people down here that they, when they go to prison, that they're given a book of their choice. Um, so if you go in the, into prison and you're a Muslim, they give you a book of the Quran. If you go in there and you're a Mormon, they give you a book of Mormon. If you go in there and you're a Christian, you tell them you're a Christian, they'll give you a Bible. I've even heard if you tell them that you are a Lutheran, they will find a catechism. Have you heard that? You haven't heard that? No, but I believe I, it. I, yeah, so they, so all the prisoners are giving, given some kind of religious book, and they make, they make, um, you know, these kind of this kind of studying, this kind of habit, uh, a, a daily part of them. This is why, you know, when you hear a lot of people come out of, when you hear a lot of guys come out of prison, they, they say something along the lines of, "I found Jesus when I was in prison." That's why, because they've spent all their time reading. Mm-hmm. Just like Dietrich's doing here, uh, the, Dietrich's looking for strength where they're looking for answers. Right, and then there's a section of this letter where he's very pointedly saying, "Please um, don't delay Renate's um, wedding." That's his sister, right? And the, the family instinct would be to postpone the wedding until. Um, I thought it was niece. Isn't it niece? It might be his niece. niece. Um, in any case, he doesn't want it postponed. He wants it to go forward, which leads to, when we get to it in a few minutes, his wedding, wedding um, sermon, sermon, yeah, sermon, which he from didn't deliver, but yeah. it's, it's written from the cell and uh, meant to be put in her hands, the, the bride-to-be's hands. It's really kind of a letter that he writes to her. And Eberhard, too. He writes it to both of them. Because, yeah. uh, not Maria, because Renate is marrying Dietrich's friend from seminary. Everhard. Bethke, yeah. Bethke. Then he has a few more, more letters. And page 29, Dear Parents, he writes um, a sentence that This was written before the Easter um, letter. I believe that no more is laid upon any man than he can receive the strength to bear. That recalls what he said at the beginning of this whole thing to me where, read that line again. I believe that no more is laid upon any man than he can receive the strength. Than he can receive the strength to to bear, bear. right? So a way back when we were talking about the state of, of Germany at the time, uh, he had mentioned in one of the parts about, um, I don't remember exactly this section, but he made mention of that God will give you the strength when you're faced with such adversity. And it was then that we made, that we blew up these arguments of, well, God won't give you more than you can handle. Um, God gives his toughest battles to his strongest soldiers. Uh, and he's echoing that here. Um, because a great deal is being laid on his shoulders, but there will not be anything that not only that he receives that not only has not passed through the hand of God, but first, but also the things that he will receive strength to endure by Christ himself. 
talking about echoing what Paul says in Philippians 4, which is tattooed on many uh, <laughs> professional athletes' arms and legs, and <laughs> I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Not survive prison, win a national championship, but for Dietrich, it's surviving prison. So how is that different than uh, the typical um, God will not, God will not put more on me than I can bear. He doesn't say that quite. What does he say? It reminds me. It reminds me of what um, what you talked about this morning at Bible study with the senior group. Um, with the oh God is look at what I did with God's help as opposed to look at what God did through me, and it's a subject change. So what's the difference there? So he talks about. Um... I believe that there's no more is laid upon any man than he can receive the strength to bear. I look at that and see the, then he can receive the strength to bear. Because there's a lot of things that, well, I think of Paul and everything that Paul went through and the list of all the sufferings he went through. If before he became Christian, he was looking at that, he would be like, there's no way that I can bear all this suffering. But as the suffering comes, he receives the strength to endure this suffering. But he doesn't, I would say he doesn't have that strength before he goes through the suffering. Um, is that fair? Right. Fair to say. Or, yeah, he receives the strength during During the suffering, suffering. right. Which is not what we want to hear. I want to hear, I have it before. I have it before. Right. So I can have confidence before. I can, it's, well, it's strength like... This is the same kind of strength that uh, David and the Israelites had before going to war with the Philistines all those times. God said, I will deliver them. Not They've already, well, there are there is a flavor of I have already delivered them. But a lot of times, you know, they, they have to go fight. They have to go uh, and actually actually take the land and wipe them out with the promise of God that you this will happen when you go and fight them. Um, you will receive that strength, but you still have to go. For for this, I, I like what he says after after he says that I believe that no more is laid on the man that he can receive the strength to bear. He says the hardest thing for me is that you must bear the burden too, but the way which you do it is again infinitely cheering and a great strength to me. So he he knows that part of part of receiving the strength receiving the strength means that you are bearing the burden. Yeah. Then there's a sentence here I think that's kind of little revealing of character, and that is, I'm learning to practice myself what I have said to other people in sermons and books. What does that say about him? We say practice what you preach, right? He's saying he hasn't practiced what he preached until now, possibly. He's saying he's now no, learning I, how I to do it. I think he's... I'm now in a position where I have to. Where I have right. to, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me... I think, there's, I think there's a lot of guys that... I think there's a lot of guys that do this where obviously they they stand in the pulpit, they stand in front of their friends or their family, and they say to endure. They say to stand up against evil and immorality. They say to condemn the sins that the world embraces, and then they come face to face with it. And then they're like, oh, that means me too. I have to do that too. And I think what Dietrich is saying here is, I've been talking to everyone about resisting tyranny. I've been talking to everybody about suffering. I've been talking to everybody about the cost of discipleship and what it really truly means to follow Jesus. And now it's my turn. 
Oh, crap, I have a cross. Right, yeah, right. Oh, yeah, this is my cross, too. And not that he was running away from that, but now it's very real, very tangible. And now he's like, I think there's a sense of if I don't do this and if I don't double down on what I've been teaching, then every then why would anyone believe or listen to what I've said if I don't do it either? So, yeah, the whole practice what you preach thing, I think, is I think that's essential here. The strangeness of his situation and how he wants to get used to it, but after four weeks, but he doesn't want to get used to it. Then the bottom of page 30, just again, to get the flavor of what's going on in other people's lives, not his. He's talking about Maria's uh, grandmother, who, again, five sons and grandsons killed and seven still out there. Out there means still in combat. Uh, it's just, that is a huge burden, I guess is what I would, would want to say. So again, to shoulder to shoulder the fact that not only your family but but your the family of those whom you love the most are are battling a, a war and a fight that you're not in favor of, and that you've been speaking out against and resisting hmm. from the very beginning, and you're suffering the consequences thus because of all that. Uh, again, this is, I'm just taking snippets here. Thirty, page thirty-two. He's talking to uh, his friend Hans. He says, "I'm one with you and Crystal in believing that before Him, that can only be Christ. There can only be subjection, perseverance, patience, and gratitude." So every question, "Why?" falls silent because it has already found its answer. So why am I in prison? Why are these things happening to my family? What's he saying there? Fall silent before God and... I think it's, he's talking, you know, it's easy to ask the question why, but mm -hmm. we don't need to ask the question why, but more, who is it, who is it fulfilled in or who do we look to instead of asking why? It's Jobian, right? So right. why, why finish the thought usually would be why is this happening to me <laughs> right right and uh where were you <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of what he, he doesn't quote job or indicate he's thinking about job but yeah it's kind of it's it's an improper question he's he's saying if if this is what is happening to me it's it's not a mistake it's part of god's plan mm -hmm. and before that i have to subject myself persevere through the Difficult times, be patient, and, wow, what's that word? Gratitude. Gratitude and suffering. Right. Yeah. How about if you did a sermon when this topic was gratitude through suffering? Yeah, right. Or tell, uh, tell anyone who's been under fire or I consider the war in the, I guess Russia, Ukraine is not really Middle East, but tell, what? Eastern Europe, yeah. Tell tell the people that are that are impacted by this to be thankful. Be thankful in the in the in the in the midst of this war between the Russians and the Ukrainian people. Be thankful for that, right? That's mm -hmm. that's essentially what he's saying. Is not only to be joyful, which is echoing James, but to actually be thankful. To be thankful for 
the cross that you've been called to bear, to be thankful for the suffering that you're enduring, that's, that's not something that we do. We're, we're actually taught the opposite, to condemn it and to run from it, not to embrace it and to be thankful for it. Yeah. We have hard enough time just being thankful and not suffering, <laughs> let alone <laughs> in suffering. Right. What was your, it's your story about the people from your old church, right? You led a Bible study for over the year and you kept track of all of their yeah, I, prayer requests. I had decided on my own because uh, every Wednesday we, you know, 20 some guys would make prayer requests. So I said, for a year, I'm going to write down everybody's prayer requests so that we can reflect at the end of the year how God has answered our prayer. And then when I looked at the list, there was not one prayer for ingratitude for anything. And uh, of course, I read that to them, and they were horrified because, <gasps> yeah, you got to be kidding me! You know, not one, not one <laughs> no, person not said a, thank you. Not a one. Not even when prayers were answered, they just moved on to the next need. Right. Oh, okay, God. Uh, now I need this done. Yeah. So thirty-eight. This is a letter he's writing to his parents. 15th of May, and it, the wedding has happened, and so he's anxious to hear what the text of the sermon was. He said he would have used Romans 15:7. Then he talks about what he does all day, which is bottom of 38. I read, meditate, write, pace up and down my cell without rubbing myself sore against the walls like a polar bear. So there's a visualization of what his, uh, I'm sure he was allowed like an hour outside the cell. Mm -hmm. But Nick, do you remember what Romans 15, 7 is? I preached at your, at your wedding. He doesn't even remember his wedding. Romans 15, 7 is, we welcome, he says Paul is urging the Romans to welcome one another, therefore, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So that's the text. Very unorthodox wedding text. But that's the text that Dietrich says that he would have used. And we're going to get to that in a minute. Yeah. But I know I'm jumping the gun, but you can't leave a verse lingering out there. Yep. So it goes on. We'll get to the to 15.7 and the wedding sermon that he crafted in just a second. But uh, he talks about... Uh, not letting what he can't do um, overwhelm him or dominate his thoughts, but he he needs to stick to what he can do, which is read and study and pray. And he writes, whoever this joker was, but one of my pre predecessors here has scribbled over the cell door. In a hundred years, it will all be over. How about that for dark humor? <laughs> hundred years it'll all be over. Then he quotes Psalm 31, my time is in your hands, is the Bible's answer to the question of uh, this feeling that his life is uh, on hold or... And, and the how long, O oh Lord. Yeah. How long, O oh Lord? hundred years. <laughs> That's what he says here. Right. He's, he's contrasting. It's like a dialectic. My time is in your hands. Yeah, the Bible says that. And the Bible says, how long, O Lord? He's opposing two Psalms, 31 and 13. And we resonate much more with how long, I think, than my time is in your hands. Uh, well, I think it's because we like asking questions more than receiving answers. Yeah, that's true. Then I, 
just picking snippets again, I love the sentence where he says, for all my sympathy with the contemplative life, monastery life, I am not a born Trappist. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Yeah. He goes, I am reading the Bible straight through from cover to cover and have just got as far as Job, which I am particularly fond of. Uh I read the Psalms every day, as I have done for years. I know them and love them more than any other book. So, the first President Bush, remember him? I don't. Oh, yeah. George Herbert Walker Bush, that guy. Um, Well, I know who he is. I just, (laughs) I don't remember his presidency. He is, I think he was Episcopalian, but... Yes, I read the Bible through, cover to cover. A little later on, he hears that his son, George W. Bush, had read it through like five times. And Dad says, why would you do that? Mm, Tells you a lot about the dad, right? I read it through once. Check! (laughs) Right. All I need to know. Thank you. Yep. Now, I don't think it means he read every psalm every day, but I think he reads through the psalms. I, and he's he's an he's an advocate for reading the Psalms aloud as well. Not only are you just, you know, committing you know reading them with your mind, but you're actually audibly saying the Psalms. And I knew a pastor who who said in saying the Psalms and and speaking them like you you're letting the you're letting the Psalm like like you're speaking the words out and then now they're coming back and almost covering you washing you with these words of lament praise thankfulness acknowledgement whatever it may be but there's there's a lot of i would venture to guess that he's praying these if he's not saying them directly out loud like us he's saying them like this and he's whispering them he's audibly communicating the Psalms to himself, because that's a very effective way of praying the Psalms. I'd add on to that. It's also effective because it forces you to slow down. Yeah. When you're reading it out loud, you can't read it as fast as when you're reading it in your head. And so you really meditate on the word a lot more when you read it out loud. Well, and also not that, not even to mention the fact that God's word is designed to be heard. So, so the Psalms are poetry, right? Right, right, right. Just, not very accessible to us poetry, but yes, because <laughs> uh, he talks about singing some of the psalms here, yeah. uh, which Heinrich Schutz. Schutz. So Schutzen is a shooter or hunter. So I don't know what Schutz is, but it's related to that, right? So um, it and you said this interchangeably, and I'm getting ready to throw the wedding sermon to you, but to say them out loud. And pray them. There's a subtle difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would that subtle difference be? I would say just saying them out loud or just reading through them. Um, it's almost more for a study or a learning aspect. Whereas when you're praying them, you are talking to God um, using the words of the Psalms. Yeah, you are. And it's a lot more personal, words, yeah. right? And so it's more than just. Yeah, for you, it's you're talking to God. It's and praying them is in a in a way personalizing them. So you to to pray them sometimes you have to slightly modify the the, the words, but uh, okay. Same sermon from a prison cell. This is written in May 1943. Um, 
it's way too long for a wedding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe not in context of 1943 Germany, but. Yeah, I don't know how long a wedding would have been in 1943 Germany, but. I'm betting you 90 minutes, not 20 minutes. <laughs> right, not not like ours, right? I did a, I think I mentioned this to you. I don't think I mentioned on the podcast. I did a wedding not too long ago, and uh, the sermon, I think the sermon was a grand total of seven minutes, and I was in a, amongst a group of people that were predominantly Catholic, and they all, I, I think I had... 10 to 12, uh, quote-unquote, job offers after that sermon. Oh, my son was getting married, my daughter, my my cousin, so and they're looking for a pastor, and, and we are just so tired of these 90 minutes. <laughs> it was so great to have a, a, a wedding ceremony that was under half an hour, and it was it was just surprising to me that there's still these weddings that are I guess maybe it's because I'm not Catholic, but um, when I don't, when we don't count weddings to be a sacrament, marriage to be a sacrament, but it was just a reminder that there are still. I can't imagine going to a church on a really hot on summer that, day. Actually, we say it's not a sacrament, but then we act like it is. Do uh, we? If it's only a civil thing, then why do we say mm, what God has put together? Let no man. Uh. Because I. Th- I hear what you're saying. We kind of walk this line. I think we walk a line because while it's not a sacrament where God does not, it's not combined, marriage is not God combining his word with a physical element with his promises. But there is, because God's word says so, that marriage is a reflection of Christ's relationship with us, the church. And so we do take it seriously, but there is that sense of, okay, baptism is forever. Uh, being claimed by God is forever. The forgiveness of, of our sins is what is, allows us to stand before God forever. Uh, the marriage feast of the lamb being, being consumed at the, at the altar, that lasts forever. And we're told very clearly that there is no marriage in heaven. Is that do you think that's probably why we Partly. don't call it a sacrament because yeah. it doesn't last forever? It's not outside of the whole requirement of a sacrament. Well. But there is but there is that sense of this is a beautiful, wonderful thing that God has instituted, but is also not commanded. He basically says, if you can't control yourself, <laughs> get married. Okay. All right. Uh I mean that's Paul. That's Paul, First Corinthians. If you can't control your burning desires, oh get gosh. married. Stop it. <laughs> so let's I, let's try the seminary student for a minute. So, how Luther conducted weddings in two phases: the religious was held in the right because didn't they didn't they get married at the civil wherever the civil place would be? No, he, took, he took them outside. Outside the church, the church steps, right? The church steps. And blessed the marriage. Right. The Now I pronounce you man and wife. That happened outside the church. Mm-hmm. That was symbolic of its uh, civil institution, not, okay. not a sacrament. That's one of the ways he did that. So, wedding ceremony. Sermon, sorry. You ripped this off for poor Nick. I did. Nick, what do you remember about your wedding sermon? 
I did well, one I remember for my it was short. <laughs> I did one for my granddaughter a, a year ago, out, outside wedding. Everybody's dressed like they dress for weddings, and it was mm, 38 degrees out. So I I won't say I did seven minutes, but I might have done 70 seconds <laughs> of sermon. You're trying to get everybody inside. Yes. The one thing I remember, I remember their teeth were chattering, including <laughs> the bride. The one thing I remembered, um, I know Pastor Tyler had several points to make. That because Dietrich Bonhoeffer makes several makes several points. <laughs> yes, but the one that uh, stood out to me, and I still remember very clearly, is. Marriage binds your love for one another. Your love does not bind your marriage. And I think that's one of the most important things that we should remember, that most marriage in America doesn't even think that 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 way. That's my favorite Dietrich quote outside of a theological context. And he's going to get to that, and we're going to go through this because we do have a little bit of time. Uh, Not that much, unless you want to wait until next time, we're approaching forty-five minutes, but we do have the time to do that. Um, but what he event, what he essentially says is that yes, it's it's not love that sustains your marriage; it's your marriage that sustains your love. Because essentially, what he's saying is, uh, it's kind of like what's the Beatles? Is it the Beatles that say love is all you need? What he's saying is no, <laughs> that that love is not enough. That's what he says. Your love for your other person is not enough. Why? Because Deacon Ron was talking last night about how, you know, the, the, the command for us, which Jesus gives at the institution of the Lord's Supper on Monday, Thursday, when he washes his disciples' feet, is to love one another as I have loved you. And we don't do that because we are sinful people. We, have, we don't have the ability. Well, I guess we do have the ability, if you want to cut hairs, I suppose. We do have the ability, but we constantly choose not to. Because it's not in our inclin, it's not our natural inclination to love like Jesus. It's to love selfishly, and so in a marriage, you are going to all the time love selfishly, even if you don't recognize it. Oh, I'm going to let my wife go out and do this, not because I genuinely want her to go and have fun with her with her friends, but because I might get to do something <laughs> later with with my friends. Or there will be a payback for right, right, exactly. Be so it's, generous, yeah, yes. right. I, uh, yeah, it's so it's not love is not enough to sustain a marriage, and Dietrich's very clear about that in this message. You want to go through it? So I'm going to ask you about your wedding towel. Describe that, please. Just the whole idea. You're talking about the Ukrainian wedding yes. thing. All right. It's got... Good thing Pauline doesn't listen because I forgot the name of it. But it's... <laughs> it's a... Uh, my wife is half Ukrainian. Um, and so we had some Ukrainian wedding traditions at our wedding. Just a couple. And Pastor Hill surprised us with another one the day before the wedding, and it is a a long, thin cloth that is like beautifully embroidered on both sides, and you lay it up um, in the chancel area where you're going to get married, and before you start the marriage vows and all that, you are standing in front of it, and then when you're about to begin, you step onto it, and the tradition goes, whoever steps onto it first is the head of the house, but also tradition is that the husband, he respects his wife and or future wife and allows her to uh, step on it first. He gives her the option to step on it first. 
and she dragged you onto it. Yes, and then I, and then you <laughs> step on, and then the husband steps on afterwards. Yes. And so, then you do the. the so vows. after the sermon, I gave a very short synopsis of his sermon. No doubt you remember that because you were thinking, "How am I getting out of here?" But <laughs> I, I, I told everybody about the little who's going to be on there first. Remember, and I said, "Sorry, Jesus was already standing there." And so that's part of what he's he's talking about when he says God is guiding your marriage and uh, God today as his yes his to yes. your yeses. Uh, right. So God's not the not that we not that God needs to give his stamp of approval, but he does in a Christian marriage, and that's important. So let's go back. He remembers the name of the... I remember what it was called, I, I think. <laughs> I, oh, good. I, I think the cloth is called a Rushnik. Rushnik. Is that right? It's SKR or something? It's what good. is Rushnik? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'll fact check that later. <laughs> I think it's Rushnik. It's not your love that sustains the marriage, right? Right. But from now on, the marriage sustains your love. Yep. That's his first point in this sermon. Right. But right. I would say we have uh, um, immediate definition problems between the world and the church about what love is this that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So in the world, what love is it? I'd say it's a transactional love. I'll, I'll love you if I get something good out of it. <laughs> okay. The world, the world well, you has... You can say erotic love, but it'd be quite all right. Passionate love. Right. My marriage is... No, I'm not talking feel, about myself. Hot sex feelings. will keep your marriage together. <laughs> you want to believe that? That'd be the dumbest thing you ever believed. But um, so, what kind of love is the church talking about? The type of love that a, a Christian wedding or a Christian marriage should have is the modeled after Christ's love, um, a selfless, sacrificial, a giving love, um, where you're worried about uh, the other person, not yourself. You don't start out knowing all about that. How do you? How do you? How do you learn to be selfless, sacrificial, and uh, in your love? Trial and error. <laughs> yes. <laughs> sin, right. sin, and forgiveness. There's, there's been a number of times in our, and I've only been married for just past three years, and there's been a lot of times where we've had to, we've had to have very serious conversation, and we've had to, you know, you're you're told. I think I hope I told you this uh, that your marriage is based in the love of Christ and the forgiveness of Christ, and you must always be willing, quick, just as quick as you are to love your wife for all of the reasons that you fell in love with her. You must be willing to forgive her and she forgive you because of what has been done for you on the cross. You have to love her. Despite, yeah, yeah, right, and that despite has such a negative connotation to it, but that's really what it is. Because I, I was listening to uh, Pastor Riley on his personal podcast, was talking about marriage, and he said, really, at the end of the day, marriage is two sinners who sleep together in the same bed. That's essentially what it is. So you are that close to another sinner, and when you're that close to another sinner, guess what? There's going to be fire and it's not going to be that hot passion fire 
that you see in all the movies. It's gonna there's gonna be hatred, there's gonna be frustration, and there are gonna be sparks flying because you are rubbing together, and it is not gonna be for the best at times. So you have to be willing to forgive, willing to adapt, willing to change, and that's why in marriage forces you to do that because you've made a commitment between to one another in front of your family, in front of your friends. And that means something. Ooh, you left somebody out of that. You didn't mean to though. Before your family, before your friends, before God, God. Yeah. That guy. <laughs> oh yeah. That guy that who's had ordained marriage in the first place. Yeah. That guy. Bad. So yeah. when it, when it goes South, yeah, it looks like I have not been following this, but the, you know, What's driving the Ukraine war off the uh, uh, headlines right now? Johnny Depp's divorce. Right, divorce. Right. And he, he, the little bit you hear, you say, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I'm not convinced he's not he's not all the way uh, culpable for that, but that's yeah. not a conversation for no, the podcast. It, it's just illustra- illustrative of the uh, what you said, the two personalities uh, – interacting with each other. I heard some, one of his friends said, say every time I went in the house, I was wondering which one of them would kill the other first. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. That's what marriage without God looks like. Right. Um, it's really, that's why whenever I get, um, when I get asked, and I'm sure you've had this happen before too, when you get people that are not Christian that ask you to do their wedding, you're... <laughs> I, I don't I don't automatically say no, but I do say um, we're gonna sit down and we're gonna talk and we're gonna make sure that this is holy and sincere the desire to build on Christ because if it's not I'm not going to I'm not gonna do that I'm not I can't in good conscience marry somebody who does not desire to build their relationship on Christ and what he has done yeah he makes uh, actually a big deal about um, what God has put together, let no man join together, let no man put asunder. The big deal being deep breath. It's God who is the actor, <laughs> yeah, not you. Oh, you but mean I like it was in, my wedding, right? You mean like in everything else, yeah, that God does. Yeah, this is this is. I thought this was the bride's wedding. <laughs> this was the. I thought this was Pauline's wedding and Brandy's wedding and Susan's wedding. Yeah. <laughs> So here I thought we could leave on a controversial note. Yeah, let's do it. Right, Ray? He says, God establishes a rule of life by which you can live together in wedlock, deep breath. You may order your home as you like, except in one thing. What's it say? The wife is to be subject to her husband, and the husband is to love his wife. That's where you close the book and run away. Right. That's where where a lot of explanation (laughs) needs to be coming and we will get to that explanation next week. Is that what you were hoping for? Yes. <laughs> well, actually, I was hoping for the second coming before the next podcast. <laughs> right. We, are, we will spend some time talking about that next week because I think there is a lot of questions that come around that topic. Uh, what does it mean for, for wives to submit their, to their husband? He's not negotiating on that. No, he's saying that it must happen. And, but there is also – so it, it's wives submitting to husbands and, and – both both husbands and wives have jobs. Right. 
and it's on both of them to keep those jobs. And we're gonna we'll talk about those. It's more than just a wife being subject to her husband. It's a wife. It's a husband being willing to. Husband's love got the to, heavier burden there. I would I would agree with that. So we'll explain because it says love your wife. Right. She doesn't and, have to love you. She just has to. Right. And we'll get with to, you. <laughs> right. And we'll get to all of that next time. So make sure you go to the website. Run away, run away. Make sure you go to the website, www.fogdetroit.com. You can find some, some good content. Make sure that if you haven't had a chance yet to go back and listen to last week's episode, um, Easter is overrated. We would really encourage you to do that. Uh, get involved with the ministry. You can find all that information on the website. And come down and see us. We are here every single day of the week <laughs> down here with our people. I, I sigh because I think we're a little bit tired today, but we're we're doing all right. We are off to our Wednesday night activities, so we will be joining you all next week with a brand new episode. Go in peace, enjoy your weekend, and we will talk with you next time. If no one has told you yet, God loves you, and so do we. Take care. One thing I find interesting in the first few letters, it starts with, well, I'm in prison and I don't really feel like I have a need to smoke. And then every letter says, please send me the smoking <laughs> ration card. Right. So I don't know. I think maybe self-deception might be be part of that. Yeah, it just shows a little bit of his human side, that's all.